Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. You've heard us talk about Citizen for some time now if you've been listening to the podcast for the last couple of weeks. Citizen is amazing. The more that I have been interacting with them, the more and more I am kind of obsessed with their technology. They are there to go out and on behalf of us, the patient, for free, go out and get our medical records so it's consolidated all in one place, making it super easy for us to then be able to send our medical history or medical files to other doctors if we need second opinions, if we end up moving, or if we want to participate in clinical trials. Now, clinical trials can be a little overwhelming and scary, which is why we have this whole podcast on Clinical Trials 101. But what Citizen is actually able to do is based on our medical data, they're able to provide us with a matching system to find the clinical trials that we qualify for. Amazing. Yes, the power of technology. I am so excited to be talking to Citizen. Thank you again for being such great partners and sponsors of this amazing webinar series we've been doing over the last couple of weeks. If you would like to find out more information, we have a special URL that you can go visit. Please go to citizen.com forward slash SBC clinical trials. That's C I I T I Z E N.com forward slash SBC clinical trials. It is a true honor and pleasure to be working with you. In today's episode, we talk not only with experts from Citizen, who's going to go into what clinical trials are, how the system works, what's the difference between a phase one and a phase three trial, things we need to know about eligibility. In addition, we also talk to three amazing panelists who are here today sharing their stories about living with metastatic breast cancer, their involvement working with Citizen, as well as their experience navigating clinical trials. So there's a lot to cover today, so let's jump right in. Welcome to the conversation. Our goal is to get information out there, and it's so great to be live today with all of you and to have our partners from Citizen on the call with us today. So I would just like to welcome everybody who is joining us for this live stream as we talk about Clinical Trials 101. And I want to emphasize the one-on-one because I by no means am an expert, um, but we are here to bring experts with us to answer some of the pertinent questions that we've been hearing around clinical trials. It is my pleasure today to be speaking with Martin Naley from Citizen, who is kind of the the, the program lead for clinical trials. You have an amazing background having worked for the Biden Cancer Institute before and have over a decade of experience working in clinical trials. So it's just an honor to be speaking with you and thank you for taking the time to join us today. It's a privilege to be here. I hear the conversation about clinical trials a lot. It's actually one of the questions I get in my inbox all the time, except that I feel like it stops right there, right? It's like, I'm interested, I've heard about it, but I don't really know what they are. Um, Can we just get, how would you define a clinical trial? What is it that the patient who's investigating, and we hear these terms, what is it that they need to know about what a clinical trial actually is? Yeah, clinical trials are something that every patient should be thinking about at every step of their care. Um, You know, the, the nature of cancer is that it's full of big decision moments. And when you hit one of those decision moments, what's the next line of therapy to go, you know, to go for? You have to be thinking almost like a chess game, you know, the, the next two steps ahead. Um, you know, what are you qualified for today to, uh, to have in your care? What could you be qualified for tomorrow? 
what decisions can you make today to get yourself ready? Um, and often people think about clinical trials as maybe the last thing you'd think about in your care. I like to think about it as the first thing you ought to be thinking about in your care. Um, and you know, trials for brand new drugs are typically, you know, the, those drugs are introduced at the end of care, um, but then trials move forward in, uh, in the care journey from you know, the very end to second line to first line, all the way to you know, the beginning of cancer. And, uh, and so some of these new treatments become available to you really at the beginning stages of, of your cancer. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think sometimes we have this misconception that clinical trials are only an option when all of the other options have exceeded, right? Or that we're on our final line of treatment and we need another resource. But what if I'm what I'm hearing is that really even on the earlier stages, these are initial conversations you can start having with your oncologist and with your medical care team about what options are available. And if you're depending on the phase and stage that you're in, if you're eligible for any of them. Am I understanding that correct? Yeah, and furthermore, if you don't consider a trial today, you might actually take on another line of care that prevents you from getting that trial tomorrow. Um, so you need to be able to think about those trials as equal to um, standard of care options. Um, they are you know, often uh, considered therapeutic options today. Um, that's, that's really a change in the medical mindset, that it's, it's not just research, it's an opportunity to get the best therapy. Uh, and uh, and so uh, wherever you are in your care, when you hit one of those decision moments um, is when you ought to be talking with your oncologist and exploring every opportunity you have. That's a really good point. And actually, we did get one of those questions of speaking of eligibility, right? And if you participate on a trial, what I think we're kind of going on in terms of this question is, would it preclude you from being eligible for other treatments later down the line or even the reciprocal? If you started off with a Taxol or an AC treatment or something, would that preclude you from participating on a clinical trial? How do we find out that information and with whom should we be speaking to? Yeah, it, so the information is available in a public place. It's just impossible to read it there. It's unfortunate. So uh, there is a place called clinicaltrials.gov online. Um, all uh, clinical trial sponsors are required to register their trials there. You can think of it like the trials phone book. Um, but it's written in a language that nobody understands. Even oncologists have difficulty understanding it. I often say it's written as riddles. Um, and, uh, and so um, not only are they riddles, but they're riddles in a foreign language, which you know, they kind of lose their meaning and even lose their humor. Um, and so uh, the, um, the challenge, I think, and this is what I've been working at for the last decade, is to bridge essentially a language gap um, between um, what's found in a patient's medical records and, you know, the language that's spoken in, which is medical terminology, and clinical trial selection criteria. Uh, which is a completely different terminology um, using similar related words, but not the same words. Um, and, uh, and so, for instance, your Taxol question, you know, there are many different drugs that are called, uh, that have their own names, Paclitaxel, you know, Abraxane, whatever, um, that are all taxanes. And this is just one random example. Um, a clinical trial may require that a patient has had a certain number of taxane treatments. 
Um, so getting that round of uh, that next that next treatment of Taxol or whatever could be the thing that qualifies you for a certain trial. But at the same time, if you've already had a, a line of, of taxane therapy um, and a trial has a limit of patients can only have had one before, then you could actually exclude yourself from that trial by accident. And so that's why it's important to have the list of trials um, that are either available to you now or could be available to you soon um, so that you can start making those decisions together with your oncologist. It's almost impossible to, to do that research on your own. Uh, and that's the work I've been doing is to deliver um, essentially reports, lists of trials to patients that they're eligible for today or that they have a qualification path to get to for tomorrow. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that. So it's almost like getting as much information as you can upfront so that you can make informed decisions about your overall life cycle plan, not just in the immediate. And I know so many of us who are listening and going through this, we are forced in a very like short period of time to make these critical decisions because the cancer is aggressive or growing, or we got diagnosed at a particular stage that we don't have a lot of time necessarily to do the investigative research or even to know that this is an option for us. So I really appreciate you bringing that to light. Yeah, these decision moments are kind of, oh my gosh, moments, you know, where exactly. everything is brought into focus in that moment. And uh, and unfortunately, the research um, that you have to do to find, you know, to find your treatment options uh, takes a bit of time. And so um, having the luxury of a, of a report um, that gives you that information uh, can, can really help in those dis discussions with your doctor. What you don't want to have happen is um, that the information gets to you after you've had the interaction with your doctor and made a decision, um, it's just too late. So, um, so it's important to make that request, get your trial options report as soon as you can. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what is this trial options report? A little bit about me. Um, so I, um, I'm a biologist um, with a business background. And uh, I worked in a, a company that helped to bring genomics into the world. Um, it was a company called Invitrogen, became Life Technologies. Um, and um, working with that company, I had a chance to um, introduce, develop and introduce some of the first genomic sequencing tests for, for cancer. Um, and um, I was really excited about them. I definitely got some religion about that technology. Um, but I was disappointed and impatient about um, the uptake of that technology in the world. So I started a company, uh, it was called Cure Forward. That company doesn't exist today. Um, what it did was help patients um, get genomic sequencing tests and gather their health information, and then use that information to, um, to get into clinical trials. Um, in doing so, I kind of learned these, you know, this, this language gap. Um, and I also learned what investigators, the people who run trials, need to see for a, you know, for a patient in order to make that you know, patient qualify for the trial. Um, and, uh, and I learned about uh, um, how difficult that is. Um, there are a lot of places out there where you can kind of get superficial clinical trial matching. Um, and, and so sometimes those places ask you a few questions online, um, you know, what your cancer type is and so on. Um, some of the questions, if they wanted to go deeper, get too hard to answer for a patient. Um, so they don't. 
And so you wind up with kind of superficial matches. Um, and, uh, and so um, I decided to make something that would be a lot more rigorous and you know, at the risk actually of being um, almost impenetrable <laughs> to, to most users. The hard part is actually making it understandable, um, um, which is a, mat a set of matches based on every aspect of your medical records that would qualify you for the selection criteria in clinical trials. And, uh, and so um, I, I started doing that when I was at Cure Forward and you know, Cure, Cure Forward stopped. Um, and from there, I've had a chance to work with a number of different companies and organizations like the Biden Cancer Initiative um, to solve this problem. And, and unfortunately, it just hasn't been solved yet. Um, and I, um, I was really lucky to meet the founder of Citizen um, who was bold enough um, to take a chance on, you know, on, on this project. Um, what's really distinct about this project is that I made no compromises. Um, the world is full of compromises on clinical trial matching. Um, and, and an example of a compromise is you might go to an institution that has a wonderful set of trials available within the walls of that institution, but it's never going to be all the trials. You know, even if you're at one of those elite academic medical centers in one of the cities with the best doctors, there could be another trial down the road that you don't know about. And, um, and so the compromise could be the breadth of trials that's available to you, or it could be the depth of matching. And I decided to take neither of those compromises. And this guy, Anil, gave me a chance to do that. So what we do through software is take all of your medical record information and compare it to all the clinical trials and deliver you a report. It's just a list grouped by the degree of match strength and the location matches um, to your travel preferences. And so, you know, within that report, you see first the highest level matches within your location choices. And then last, you see kind of the partial matches outside of your location choices and, and everything in between. Um, and so that's what you get. Um, and it's available now. Like it's my dream that I worked at for a decade now. And I got a chance to make it with a company um, that really cares about making this possible for patients. Fantastic. Well, congratulations. And I'm just so excited to hear about all of this coming together and how you really are not taking any compromises. You really are just going out there to create the best tool possible to help the patient and find that match and to talk about the the role that technology plays in our healthcare, in our health system. And I really appreciate that. Cool. You know, in technology land, um, there's a acronym that everybody uses called MVP. That's the minimum viable product. Um, you know, what's the least you can get away with and get on the market? Well, unfortunately, in clinical trial matching, the MVP is everything. <laughs> and, and that's just what we had to do. There's nothing, if you did anything else, you're delivering superficial matching. And the consequence of that is a patient getting hopeful and, you know, organizing their care around something that doesn't exist. And then meeting that investigator and the investigator having to give that patient bad news if they're not actually eligible for the trial, it's it's terrible for everyone. It's bad for the patient, bad for the investigator. And what happens is the world gets jaded. Yeah. And, and, and then everybody stops. 
know, the doctors stopped looking for trials, the patients stopped looking for trials, the investigators stopped taking the referrals, the, you know, they just don't pick up the phone. And, and so the MVP is you have to do it perfectly to overcome this fatigue that the world feels so that people can actually believe again. Um, that's what we're after. Wonderful. It sounds like you're on the right pathway. And before I bring our panelists on to join our conversation, one last terminology question I have for you. So as people are getting their their matching based on their medical records and they're getting this report of what trials they're available to, does your report also break it down based on like phase one, phase two, or phase three trials? And then specifically, how are those trials differentiated? Can you explain a little bit what the difference is between a phase one, two, and three? Yeah. Um, so I'll take those in order. Um, so um, the first question, the answer is yes. Um, within each of those four trial groupings about match strength and location, um, the sort order is um, it is by phase descending. So you see the phase three trials first down to the phase two and then once. Um, and, uh, and so uh, the reason that we show them all that way is phase three isn't necessarily better. You know, um, sure, those drugs are a little bit more validated, um, but or those treatments, it's not all drugs these days. Um, uh, however, there are advantages to phase one trials too. Um, there's no control arm. You know, some patients prefer that. They want, you know, they want um, a sure access to a new thing, even if it's a less proven thing. Um, we don't have an opinion about what's better or worse, so we show them all uh, and give people a chance. Now, um, in that, I kind of started to answer your second half of your question, which is what's a phase one, two, or three. Um, phase, uh, phase one trials are where drugs are first introduced and tested for safety, um, drugs or other therapies. And, um, and so in the phase one trial, people are trying to figure out what's the right dose, what's the safe dose. Um, and, uh, and they start getting an initial read of efficacy at that point. Um, but the trials aren't designed for efficacy testing, they're designed for safety testing. Um, phase two is more efficacy-based testing. Um, it's a broader group of patients. It's expanding that dose to more people to see, uh, see how, how that affects uh, cancer. Um, when they start getting some data in phase two that, uh, that indicates the drug is really working, um, then they go into what's called a registration trial. Phase three trials are where you're trying to get the drug FDA approved. And, uh, and so those are much bigger trials. It's much more defined patient cohorts and, uh, and the outcomes are uh, much more statistically measured. Thank you. Thanks for defining all of that for us. So we have some terminology to use and describe. And one term also, you mentioned the control arm. So in these phase one trials, am I understanding it correctly that everyone who participates in that trial is a recipient of that drug or therapy? There is no placebo or alternative arm. It's just everyone gets that. That's true. And it, but I I want to temper that um, in, in phase three, it's, there's no placebo. Um, it, it's um, it, the best standard of care. Um, and, and it's really important to know that, you know, so it would be so unethical to, you know, to put a cancer patient on something that you know won't help them. Um, and so now these trials are absolutely done, you know, for patients. They want to help patients while they're advancing these new treatments. Um, and that's why 
Um, I've, I've always believed, and I've learned this from a mentor a long time ago, research medicine is the best medicine because there's a chance you're gonna get the new thing. But even if you don't get the new thing, you're still gonna get the best care. Um, and that's why people who go on clinical trials live longer, statistically. There, you know, there's great research out there that shows one-year survival and five-year survival statistically improves just by getting into a trial, not necessarily even getting the new, new thing. Understood. Understood. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I would like to welcome Abigail, Allison, and Sheila to the conversation. All three of you have amazing, beautiful stories. All of you are living with metastatic breast cancer, and you've come to it in different phases, which I think is really great. One of the questions that we had from one of the the people who have RSVP'd to attend this today actually asked, she started off being an ER-positive breast cancer patient and then ended up with triple negative breast cancer. And she was shocked to see that the subtypes can actually change and wanted to know if that was even possible. So I am looking at you, Allison, who I know who has had that exact experience where you were diagnosed in around 2007 with ER positive breast cancer, had phenomenal um, response to all of your therapies, and then 10 years later had a recurrence where it came back metastatic and also triple negative, correct? Yes, um, that is what happened to me, and I was completely floored because <laughs> um, I didn't know that could happen. Yeah, um, and it was let's just say it was extra upsetting at the time because it was bad enough. <laughs> yes, absolutely, <laughs> I can imagine. Um, but um, but yeah, so that's been my um, that's been my situation. I've been um, living with metastatic triple negative now for um, almost almost two and a half years and had my I've had my ups and downs as I think we all have. I've been on many lines of therapy. In fact I've I've sort of lost count. I'd have to go back and see if it was five or six I'd have to like to really think that through. Um, and I've been on some of the more novel therapies. I've been on the more traditional therapies. Um, but, uh, you know, overall, I'm doing pretty well. Um, luckily, nothing's in my organs. Okay. So that's really lucky. Um, I've had a, a hell of a time with my neck. Um, it, I don't think I'll ever think of the expression pain in the neck mm. in the same way. I don't think I'll ever call anyone that. <laughs> like my son, he's being bad. I don't think I'll call him that. Because um, that's been um, where my cancer likes to hang out and and cause me trouble. Um, Understood. As far, yeah, as far as clinical trials, um, I personally haven't had the experience yet of, of participating in one. But um, I, of course, realize the importance and... I've um, been consider. I was in consideration for one. I went pretty far down uh, the line. It was pretty much the same story that Martin was alluding to, where I was out. To, well, I was out to dinner with some friends, and I thought I qualified. And then I got the call saying I didn't, mm. and it was based on medical minutia that even my doctor thought was minutia. Um, but, uh, but I'm hopeful that that'll find opportunities in the future. 
for wow. clinical trials. I can see how that would be very challenging and hard to receive that news, let alone a diagnosis yeah. and a recurrence. And then when you think you're so close to being a beneficiary of being on a trial to realize that there's yeah. these small little things that still can disqualify us. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I'm sorry that you had to go through that experience. And I will circle back with you because I know you did have some, some experiences too, trying to work through collecting all of your medical records and all of your data, yeah. which is such an important piece. So I'll get back to that comment. Um, but I also want to welcome Sheila for um, joining us today as well. It's lovely to have you on our live stream and you have a wonderful story as well. Um, and congratulations, I want to say, and thank you for your service of 25 years in the Air Force. That's incredible. You. you discovered your lump when you were um, in the Air Force. Yes, I was active duty military back in um, uh, 2009. And I discovered... Um, my backstory, my mom died of uh, metastatic breast cancer in 2004, and five years later, I got it. So um, I was diagnosed metastatic. Um, I sneezed and didn't know what it was, and it was breast cancer that had spread to my liver and ribs. So I've been living with it for 11 years. 11 years. That's phenomenal. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about the symptoms? Like, how did you know? No, I just thought it was like a weird feeling. It, it burned. And I'm like, that's weird. And I thought it was my breast. I'm like, well, I had my mammogram and and I've been getting mammograms since I was 37 because my mom died when I was 37. And I was just like, that's weird. And then I sneezed again like a week later and I was like, no. So I went to my military doctor and I was just like, every time I sneeze, it burns. So um, they did a mammogram and he brought me in and he showed me, he said, you see that white stuff on your breast? He sh like literally showed me. He said, that's breast cancer. He said, what you were feeling was the cancer had, um, was pressing onto your ribs. So that's the wow. burning feeling I was feeling. Yeah. Mm -hmm. but who, like I'm 43 years old, having fun, enjoying life. And who would have thought 43 years old? I didn't even know medicine. I didn't even know black women could get breast cancer. Except for a while. Because you look at the commercials and you don't see, back then you didn't see black women with breast right. cancer. So I'm like, breast cancer? You know, the only person I knew was my mom. And then yeah. they said it. I was just like, wow. So I had to retire from the military and take care of myself. So. Absolutely. Well, and I appreciate you sharing your story too and letting... Thank you for inviting me. Of course. I'd like to turn to Abigail now to share a little bit about her story. And every time I listen to it or read about it, I'm always discovering something new. But what I want to highlight about your story is that, you know, you were diagnosed with stage two breast cancer and went through all of the typical treatments of surgery and chemotherapy. And within a short period of time, discovered that it was metastatic and had spread to your bones. And the unique piece about this is that although your lymph nodes came back node negative, it actually traveled through the blood to your bones. It was incredibly shocking. So it was actually a medical mistake um, that uh, when I went for my first dose of chemo, the nurse checked the box to check my tumor markers. And um, so, yes, in the in the middle of chemo, thinking I was stage two, found out that I had actually been stage four from the beginning, and the tumors in my legs were actually uh, substantially larger than the tumors in my breast had ever been. 
So um, that was why I was limping and I was one bad step away from uh, both of my femurs shattering. So it was a, a huge shock and rushed into emergency surgery within days of discovering that I was stage four. So now I have lots of metal in my body. I have rods in both femurs. Um, so still waiting for the, uh, uh, what's the superhero where you can like shoot out metal from, from your hands. So still waiting for, for that piece as, as well as the uh, superpowers from all the radiation, you know, got to have some silver linings to all of this stuff. We Well, one question that I want to follow up on is, you know, we've been talking a lot about clinical trials and Martin gave us a great overview of matching and how to find them in this amazing report. But I wanted to ask if anyone to direct it to anyone who wants to take the first question. How did you first decide like that this data piece was really important, that we needed to have a centralized place for medical records, that you could feel empowered to then send it out to places, to medical fields, to doctors, and then that you wanted to start investigating or at least probing whether you got accepted onto a clinical trial or not, that clinical trials were something on the horizon for you? Well, I can take the the first piece. So I moved in the middle of my treatment uh, from one city to another. And um, I physically gathered all of my records. Like I literally had four binders full of paper and CDs. I mean, that's the way that I thought about things. And my background is as a lawyer. And so um, I would always have the paper and then like, you know, 12 um, electronic backups because I was always afraid of losing things. I also knew that um, medical records are typically kept seven to 10 years. And so having the physical pieces of paper made me feel comfortable that the records would always be accessible. Um, and it wasn't until I had done all of that, all of that work that I found out about Citizen and the way that they gather the records for you which would have saved me a whole lot of time running around trying to, to get information. So that was um, a huge um, a huge effort. But then I also came into this thinking that clinical trials were for people who are about to die. Like it was a Hail Mary last ditch effort. And um, when I came to my uh, current medical oncologist about, I was about um, six months in, to my diagnosis, I signed up to participate in my first clinical trial, which was a method of genomic testing. Um, so it was testing on my original tumor to find out if there were actionable mutations, uh, mutations that had a treatment specific for it. And as a result of that trial, which was conducted at Memorial Sloan Kettering, I found out I had the PIK3CA mutation which has led to my second line treatment, which I'm still on, which is PICRAE. And so I learned early on, and I'm thankful I learned early on that clinical trials are not just about taking medicine. And I'm sure Sheila will talk about her experiences of actually on an experimental treatment that has worked wonders for her. And I'm so happy about that. But that clinical trials are also about learning, just learning about how tests are run or how a different technique. So I'm actually in a clinical trial right now that is looking at your blood work and circulating tumor DNA. And the idea is to be able to give doctors a, um, a leading indicator, and they think they're gonna be able to tell doctors um, a year to 18 months in advance 
when cancer is progressing or mutating such that you're going to have a progression. So my experiences with clinical trials have all been about take my data, take my blood, take my tissue, test it, and then give me information about it, which is, I think it definitely was something that I had not thought of um, in terms of participating in um, a clinical trial. So, um, so that's been a great experience. And um, I'm going to get on my, my soapbox for a second. As, as a lawyer, I'm always super, super, super interested in informed consent. I'm always super interested in the documents that people have to read. I'm always super interested in um, you know, the, the justice piece of the people who really need the trials getting access to the trials. But um, I have a nonprofit. And through my nonprofit, I recruit lawyers. And um, one of the things I want to tell everybody who is listening, if you are getting into a clinical trial and you don't understand the, t- the paperwork, if you don't understand the consent, I will find a lawyer in your area to help you interpret that document because everybody needs to understand 100% what they're signing. And, and I'm not saying that that means that anybody's doing anything nefarious. It's just that these documents are often written in language that us lawyers use, and it's a whole jargon all its own, just like medical jargon. So, um, you know, don't make the documents or not understanding what they are be a barrier to participating in a trial because um, I'm happy to help with that. Wonderful. Thank you. And that was Connect for Legal Services. Is that excellent? Yes, ma'am. Wonderful. So to segue from there, Sheila, what was your experience with clinical trials and when did you know that you wanted to get involved? Well, um, I had a um, fourth progression. Um, I was on my sixth line of treatment and um, my doctor said, well, it's progressing again. I said, well, what do you want to do? So she said, well, you can go back on a standard um, one that's already approved um, uh, treatment or you could try this clinical trial. And I was like, Sure. You know, I said, you know, my platform is clinical trials and getting black women and men to participate in clinical trials, um, you know, considering the medical mistrust and the things, uh, our history, our cultural differences. Um, and I said, sure. So um, it's, I've been on it since July of 2018. Um, like uh, Abigail was saying about the informed consent and stuff, you know, a lot of this stuff it's almost like this is not rocket science. Like, you know, as far as the informed consent, you know, make it an app or make it something where I can understand it, you know, or make it, you know, even in the black community, make it the transportation or um, daycare, make it easier for people to participate in clinical trials. You know, when I'm on Twitter, somebody said, well, I have to pay for parking. Well, why do they have to pay for parking? And this is this is about, you know, it should be human centered. This is not so much about the minutes, but this should be human centered to where you make it easier for people to participate in clinical trials. You know, don't make it harder for me. It's already hard enough. You know, it wasn't a last resort. Um, um, I just decided, hey, if I'm gonna walk the walk, I'm gonna talk the talk. So I decided, you know, that's when I decided to um participate, but you know, as far as medical records, you know, in the military, you get to stack of medical records. <laughs> like, it's a stack when you retire. And it's just like, well, what am I doing with all this? <laughs> so luckily for my hospital, um, you know, and I um, joined Citizen, um, you know, I was talking to Sophia and uh, Ricky Farley. 
and um, fairly, I'm sorry. And, um, you know, it's like, well, why don't you try to get people, you know, involved in citizens so all their medical records is just in one location, which is a good idea. Because if I want to see my scan, I want to see my scan. Exactly. <laughs> or if I want to see, you know, my, uh, you know, anything from 10 years ago, you know, or five years ago, I want to be able to just go on a computer and see it. I don't have to need all this paperwork. So I think it's all about education and just, um, you know, we already have. What people don't understand, too, is from the Tuskegee Airmen, the IRB was formed. So there are so many, you know, guidelines now that, you know, I'm not saying forget it because <laughs> we'll never forget it, but there are so many guidelines and protocols and stuff with clinical trials now that, you know, we're, we're protected um, from things like the syphilis and the Tuskegee Airmen Project and the uh, Exactly. And I'm going to turn to Martin. I'm going to bring him back on to join us in this conversation as well, because this is a great segue to actually linger a little bit more on exactly what you were saying, Sheila, and informed consent, some of the ethics around clinical trials and the protections that the Institutional Review Board is going under and all of that. So Martin, can you explain a little bit about what those best practices are to ensure the um, health and safety of people participating? Sure, happy to. Um, before I go into that, um, I just want to pick up on something that uh, was mentioned a moment ago about minority participation in clinical trials. Um, you know, it, I, I found some numbers just recently. I was, I was working on a project and, and came across these. Um, and I, I found these numbers uh, kind of staggering. Um, so African-Americans make up 12% of the U.S. population, but only 5% of the clinical trial population, which is, you know, it's, it's definitely an underrepresentation. But then you look at Hispanic population, and that's 16% of the United States, but only 1% of, uh, of clinical trial participants. Um, sorry, yeah, 1%. So um, that, that tells you there's a lot of room for improvement. Um, you know, overall, about 20 to 40% of patients um, could qualify for clinical trials. That's the estimate out there based on, um, uh, on academic experts. Um, I've actually found trials for just about every person who's come through our service. Um, so it's probably higher than that 20 to 40%, but only 8% participate today. And, um, and that is... You know, then you look among uh, ethnic subpopulations and you know, white people just have you know, a much better chance of participating in research than anybody else. And we, you know, any solution that comes to bear for clinical trial matching has to address that inequity um, or it's not a solution. That's our point of view. Um, just wanted to get that out there. Um, regarding kind of protections, I, I think a lot of the protections are, exist today because of what was mentioned here about Tuskegee Airmen and so on, you know, there, there were poor protections in the past and, um, you know, exploitation, really, um, of, of different groups of people to do research. And, um, and that was, that is unconscionable, um, you know, looking back on it. And, um, and so um, that's why these protections do exist. Every clinical trial is overseen by an investigational review board, um, which is part of a medical institution. Um, every institution has one. And, uh, and then also 
Um, there are investigational review boards that span multiple institutions um, so, so that community hospitals can also offer research without having to, to, to develop their own IRBs. Um, and, uh, and so those IRBs meet and talk about a protocol and they won't allow that protocol to happen at that institution unless safeguards are in place. Those safeguards are described in an informed consent document that's given to the patient. Um, and uh, like Abigail said, those can be really dense. Um, uh, so it's important to get some help sometimes to, you know, to read through them. I, I do believe that they're written with the best intention to protect the patients who participate in research. I would agree with that as as a lawyer. I mean, I, I've drafted lots of documents where I understood what they said, but the layperson would not. Um, so I, um, I wasn't casting aspersions on, on anybody's intentions there, just that us lawyers do speak in, in a different language. Um, so it, it's important to know that. Um, and it's important to know as a patient walking into it that nobody's trying to hide the ball, right? Uh, nobody's trying to confuse you or or make it more difficult. It's legitimately that words, everyday words that people use oftentimes have a different definition in the legal context, but also everyday words often have a different definition in the medical context. So it legitimately is you're just walking into somebody else's world in terms of language. Absolutely. Had, just just um, like cancer, it's a whole new language. It's crazy. That, we had, that here you are sick and you have to learn a new language. Yeah. Go, sorry. Go ahead, Sheila. We had this discussion on Twitter the other day where it said, are you going to call me a subject or a patient? Do I look like a subject? No, I don't look like a subject. I look like a patient. Don't call me a subject. But then that's another thing, a race, uh, um, cultural difference, you know, or experimental drug. We're already thinking that, you know, we're going into this as guinea pig, you know. No, we're patients. Patients matter. We, mm -hmm. You know, call us patients. I don't want to be called a subject. Or, or maybe even a person. Here comes the subject. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, no, I'm a patient. Yeah. Um, clinical trail. Right. I, I wanted to jump in and talk about my experience when I came very close. And I mentioned earlier that I thought I was going to enroll and I didn't. But I wanted to sort of recount um, what it was like to go and learn about the trial. Um, so, so basically, I went to the office of a of a trial coordinator, and there was a you know, couple of nurses who focused on trials who were walking me through the study design, and it was very, very, very complicated to understand. Um, now, I have a I have a PhD, not in science but in literature. I've um, worked in the pharmaceutical industry for 15 years. And I had difficulty understanding what they were talking about with the study design. Um, so to, and, and my husband looked at me and he, he whispered in my ear, and my husband's a Yale graduate. He whispered in my ear, he said, what the hell is a wild type? Um, and he's so, there's really a, I mean, we're, the, the way trials are, there's there's a long way to go in describing trials in a way that makes sense to people. I could have easily run the other way. There were there were no um, handouts about how to, you know, what is a trial? What's the terminology? 
they literally gave me a copy of the study design uh, that, that the scientists use. So frankly, it was a bit appalling the way information is communicated to patients and something I really feel passionate about just, you know, bringing that to light for a few reasons. One, you know, if you're in that situation and you're considering a trial and you have no idea what they're talking about, just realize you're not alone because most patients don't have any idea. So that's sort of some comfort for patients out there if you don't understand. And two, for, for clinicians, you guys need to do a better job of, of taking things down and explaining them. That's a big piece of why people don't enroll because it's they don't know what a wild type is or anything else. So. And no, nowhere in your medical record will would it ever say that you're wild type. You know, yeah. <laughs> it would just it would just actually it would be the absence of information. You just wouldn't have a mutation yeah. that gene reported, yeah. and and so um, that's what makes it impossible. These patients and trials are are desperate for each other, yeah. <laughs> and and yet they're just ships in the night because. <laughs> Because the trials are out there, you know, saying, "Hey, come on down if you're a wild type," and nobody knows yeah. if you're a wild type. Yeah. Right. It seems like we could do a lot to kind of bring the groups together, which is what 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 we're doing. Right. It's it's all of these constituents, and you know, maybe even it's part of the IRB process or the the recruitment process of meeting with the patients to say, "Does this actually make sense?" I know I'm the primary investigator, but what questions do you have that we can have this handout or this FAQ sheet that we give to people in advance and really start moving the needle that way? So we talked a lot about your experience collecting the data piece and then participating in the the long arduous process of becoming on clinical trials. Martin, it sounds like what you're doing at Citizen is really trying to alleviate some of these pain points. Can you talk a little bit about what your process is like for collecting the medical records and the matching and what can a patient expect, not the subject, but the patient expect um, when they reach out to Citizen to get more information and get involved? Sure. Um, It's all designed to be a 60-second process. Um, And, um, you know, it's online, you just go to the citizen website and sign up. Uh, you can do it on your phone. You take a picture of your driver's license and um, and then citizen uses um, basically your sign up form with your ID to go to every place that you've had medical care um, and make that request on your behalf. It's, it's your legal right to get your data. Um, and so citizen just helps you exercise that right, which is afforded to, uh, you know, to you under HIPAA. Um, a lot of people talk about HIPAA as um, kind of a blocker in healthcare. It's actually not intended to do that at all. Um, the P in HIPAA is not privacy, it's portability. Um, and the idea is to make your data available to you where you want it. And, and so um, we go ahead and make those requests. Institutions typically deliver um, those medical records to us in giant PDF documents, just like what you talked about, Sheila, the you know thousand page binder of your medical records. Um, I've worked with a lot of companies who have tried to argue that that data should be more interoperable or operable um, and um, try to fight the system. 
uh, one of the things we realized at Citizen is just wasn't worth it. You're not going to change the system everywhere. Um, th there's a lot of incumbency in healthcare. And, uh, and so we said, fine, give us those 1,000-page, 3,000-page PDFs. We'll learn how to read them. And, uh, and so what we did is made a machine learning process. Um, machine learning is a fancy language, but basically what it means is um, you, you start a machine, and the machine is wrong all the time, like all the time. All right, so and you start feeding documents into the machine, and you just start telling it that it's wrong. It's like, nope, that's not right. And then every now and then the machine makes a lucky guess. And, and you say, you know, you, you, you pat the machine on the head and say, good job. Um, and you, you, you verify that that lucky guess was right. And now the machine has learned, okay, when I see this, I can, you know, I, I, I want to get that from the documents or I want to note it this way. Um, what Citizen has done is made it possible to take that 3,000, 1,000, however long page PDF and pull out the information that's important for your cancer care, just the, you know, the most vital elements. And the machine, through its machine learning, has gotten to a very high accuracy point where it's almost always right. And then um, there's a small team of clinical reviewers who look at the machine outputs and they basically do the you know, head patting on the machine to make sure it keeps on learning. And, uh, and then also tell the machine when it's getting something wrong. And then those things get published as patient cancer cards. So as a patient, you start out with the 60 second onboarding process. And then a couple, maybe a couple weeks later, sometimes a couple days later, sometimes within minutes, um, you get a digested cancer card of your cancer story from the beginning, from all the places that you've had care. Um, that's available to you. And then from there, you can start using it in different ways. And one of the ways is to say, is to raise your hand and say, I want to try. Um, and then things come my way. Um, and we use an algorithm, same kind of thing, machine learning, just a lot of teaching of the computers to figure out which trials might be suitable for you and to make those reports. So as a patient, it's completely hands off. It's a 60 second sign up process and then raising your hand for different things you want. And that's all there is to it. And it's free, right? Doesn't cost the patient anything for them to do this. And if you as a patient are getting your records, the different hospitals are allowed to charge you. They're allowed to charge you a search fee and then they're allowed to charge you per page. Even if they're emailing you the records, they're still allowed to charge per page depending on the rules in whatever state you are. For here in Florida, they are allowed to charge a dollar per page up to a certain amount and then 25 cents a page thereafter. But if you go through Citizen, you don't have to pay any of those things. So just just a small plug. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a really good point, too. And I know we're talking about metastatic breast cancer, but can early stagers also participate or do they have to wait until they're done with active treatment? Yeah, I, I think it's really important because we can to, to mention that because we can um, we can always do an update. You know, if, if, if you you know finish a round of therapy or have you know kind of new progression or a new status update. Um, it's a lot easier to do a refresh than it is to start from the beginning in building those cancer cards. Um, so we encourage people to you know, sign up, get everything in place, and then doing updates is not a big deal. Um, and the other thing that's important to, uh, to mention is we were talking a moment ago about informed consent. And there's this notion at Citizen, or not a notion, it's religion, um, 
of a patient's full informed consent, um, meaning that a patient um, is receiving their records in, into Citizen, but every use of those records is authorized by the patient. So if, if you're signing up to look for clinical trials, you agree to participate in that process. If your information is going to a second opinion provider, you're authorizing that. Like everything that happens with your data is your choice. And that's really important. Yeah, I felt very comfortable with the whole process. Um, I didn't initially answer the question of how I got involved with Citizen, but, but to be honest, I wasn't really looking for anything. You know, I just met these guys because they've um, really gotten involved in the breast cancer community. Um, so I kind of said, well, sure, why not? Um, and then I, you know, not really knowing what the impact would be, um, but, you know, then I realized that, wow, this would be great if I needed a second opinion, because actually at one point I did need a second opinion, and it was very stressful to gather all the records, and I, I barely could get the records in in time for the appointment, so it would have been great to have that was kind of what I initially did. And then and then I found out, wow, they had this clinical trial matching service. Um, again, I wasn't really looking for that, but I said, you know, great, let's you know, let's try it, let's see what what I can learn. And now I have this full report on, but I have to admit I haven't really done very much yet because it's not with yet, because it's not I'm sort of um, I'm not really at that point yet where I need a trial, but but it was really comforting to see the sheer volume because you always feel like, oh, there aren't very many. But there were like, I don't know, like so many, like maybe, I feel like there might have been 50. I mean, I was so overwhelmed by, by the number and the range of types of trials. So it just made me feel really good to know, you know, okay, like here, here are so many options if I ever need them, so. Uh, thanks, Allison. It's, it's important to note also that um, you know, some people do see 50 or more, 100 sometimes, um, clinical trials in their report. Um, just for context, we have over 700 and that are fully described in our database right now. Um, so, that, you know, we're working hard to cut those down for people. Um, but then out of those 50 or 100, we always try hard to get to the you know, five or so that are within your location preferences that are a full match. And, and that was because the first few times I delivered those big reports to people and they saw 50, they freaked out. And I needed to, you know, I, I needed to figure out how to you know, give them some markers in the road. Um, what we don't do is recommend anything. That's like, we're not medical you know, professionals. It's not something we would do. Um, but we wanna make sure that there are landmarks to help people navigate these reports. As we wrap up today's conversation, I would love to go around our virtual room and ask each of you, what piece of advice would you leave our viewers and our listeners with today with regards to clinical trials? Um, well, sure. No, I would say definitely sign up for citizens if you have nothing to lose. And it's just kind of good planning for the future because um, you might want to see that, have that second opinion or you might want to enroll in a trial. And why not? Um, it's free. Um, but the other thing I'll say is for, I, I think you said one takeaway, but I'm going to say two. Um, for people with triple negative breast cancer, which is what I have, 
I'm just putting in an extra plug for clinical trials. They're especially important for us. There's still so much that's being discovered. It's, you know, really a challenging cancer to treat. But there's so much out there in clinical trials. And that, um, you know, really has, uh, yeah, there's really some great um, life-extending pop possibilities. So really, if you, I think it's important for everybody, but especially if you have triple negative, please, you know, pay attention. Abigail, what about you? Take away your piece of advice you'd like to leave us with today. I think other than signing up for citizens, because, you know, that's, that's the obvious takeaway in terms of having everything in one place. Um, for me, anyway, I think the a, a big piece of advice that I would give to everybody, even starting out, is to have this conversation with your doctor regularly. Even if you're doing amazing on whatever line of treatment that you're on, asking your doctor, is there anything else that I could participate in, such as the genomic trial that I was able to participate in that led me to my second line of treatment? Continually talk about that not just with your doctor, but with your friends. I think that for those of us in the MBC community, we are talking to each other regularly and knowing other people's experiences or a, being able to participate in a trial at, say, an institution that might not be local to you, um, you know, having these conversations regularly, I think will only result in being able to hear about different options might not be exactly appropriate for you, but at least to continue the conversation. Sheila, what about you? Thank you again for sharing your story and everything. What are your key takeaways oh, and you. advice you would leave us with today? I would just say, like Abigail was saying, just to continue to have the open conversations um, with your doctor about clinical trials, about your health, because this is your body. This is you, you know. Um, there's no right or wrong question. There's no right or wrong, you know. Um, it's all about you, you know. Um, and just continue to ask questions and ask your doctor about citizen. Well, what do you think? Have you heard of it? You know, uh, what do you think about a clinical trial matching? You know, I tell my doctor everything. <laughs> like, I heard about this citizen now, let me, let, you know. But, you know, just continue to have those open conversations because it's so, this is your body. This is your life. You know, it's, it's important. You know, we want to live. You know, we want trials and we want, this is top-notch research. This is excellent research that, you know, like I said, I've been on it for two and a half years and it's, it's been working good. So I want that to work for everybody. Martin, I feel like we just scratched the surface. Like, one hour deep dive into clinical trials, how to get involved with Citizen, and where to go from here. So I'll definitely be picking your brain later so we can continue the conversation. But if there's one piece of advice or anything you want to stress to leave our listeners with today, what would it be? A diagnosis of cancer is so terrifying and so overwhelming. Um, one of the things that I'm so impressed about is the community that exists for, for uh, patients with cancer, people like you know, people on this call today, you know, people um, even who aren't feeling well are doing everything they can to help other people because they know that they're not feeling well. And I'm moved by that. Um, the, when, you, when you're diagnosed with cancer, you're thrown in the deep end and everything is really foreign to you. Um, even if you're an English speaker, you know, and you are well-educated, 
uh, Yale degree, you know, um, you know, most fortunate of circumstances, it can still be overwhelming and almost impossible to understand. Um, we're here to help. That's all. And um, and we want to make sure that when you hit those, you know, those moments where you say, I don't know what to do or I don't know what this means, um, reach out. Um, and I say that when, um, you know, if you go through citizens process and you get a match report from us, you can talk to me personally. I, I'm here to help. That's everybody who is diagnosed with cancer needs a hand sometimes. And, uh, and that's what we're here for. Thank you everyone for listening today, for participating, sharing your stories, providing us with just a wealth of information and the tools we need to figure out how to collect and take ownership of our medical data and also how to find these amazing matching services so we can actually advance research, participate in research, not only benefiting ourselves, but future generations. I also feel like there's a lot of topics we haven't yet talked about with regards to clinical trials. Again, this was just a crash course 101, but we will be hosting a part two. And I believe some of the questions that we want to address are around the financial what I'm going to call financial toxicity. I think that's kind of a little bit of a buzzword that's going around right now. If you're participating in a trial, if you have children, who's watching them during daycare? Who are paying for the cost to travel to and from the clinical trial site, et cetera? These are some real concerns that need to be taken into consideration. As we heard earlier in the conversation today, Martin brought up some great points about the percentages of people participating in clinical trials, and we need to do better. We need to be more inclusive and create a more diverse environment in these clinical trials so that we can have the data and the knowledge and the research so we know that when we do prescribe chemotherapies or various drugs to understanding breast cancer further, how it affects different populations. This is really important, so stay tuned for part two. Thank you for tuning in and listening to our podcast. If you would like to find out more about our organization and upcoming events and ways to connect, you can find out more by visiting our website at survivingbreastcancer.org. I would like to acknowledge that all of the information on our podcast is from personal experiences, and it is not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should always consult your medical care team. If you're looking for specific topics or would like to be a guest on our show, feel free to contact me directly at laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. And of course, we have a couple social media handles you can follow us at as well. For example, Surviving Breast Cancer Org, all one word, as well as our podcast specifically, Breast Cancer Conversations. Until next time, keep on thriving.